Hey, welcome. Welcome to North Village Church. I'm glad you're here this morning. My name is Keith Tooley. I serve as the leadership development pastor here. And how about those blue bonnets? Woo! That's my favorite one, favorite flower. Well, hey, we're really glad you're here this morning. This is a big morning. We're having a grand opening. Been in this place for several months now. And you, you've seen things develop as we moved along. And uh, so thankful for Miran uh, and all the work he has done. Wow. Really appreciate you, Miran. My desire this morning is that you would be able to connect with God. And as we worship God and we hear from his word, I just pray that you just be able to really connect with him on a very personal level. He's a very personal God. So I hope that happens for you. Hey, uh, right after the service, we're going to be having our grand opening festivities. Nathan's going to be telling us more during announcements about that, what we're supposed to do. So uh, there are some electric uh, pads that we pass around, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Nathan, if you could grab that one and start passing them back. We'd just like to get a little information so we could stay connected uh, with you. Now, we're in a sermon series, and you can see on James, it's conf confronting hypocrisy. So, whether we like it or not, sometimes we're, we're hypocrites a little bit in how we live out our faith, and we really don't want to do that. And last week, our lead pastor, Michael, he talked about faith in the world. I hope you got to hear that message. If you didn't, please go on our YouTube channel, or you can go on our website and hear that message. And today, I'm going to talk about faith and wealth. It's going to be from James, uh, latter part of James 4 and chapter 5. If you want a Bible, there's some on the back table back there. And uh, we also have devotionals that we follow that have every sermon for the year in these devotionals. And we're going to be on page 163, so feel free to grab one of those. It's our gift to you. Well, let's get started. As we get, go through this message today, I'm going to be covering three points. The problem, self-reliance, the solution, dependence on God, and then warnings for the wealthy. All right, the problem, self-reliance. Who needs God? I need God. Let me tell you why. So I grew up in a Christian home, and I went to a retreat, a youth retreat, when I was 14, and I said yes to Jesus Christ. And I did feel him come into my life. And I would pray, and I would read the Bible, and that was like in, in junior high. What we used to call junior high is now middle school. I will tell you, by the time I was a sophomore in high school, um, my faith was waning already by a sophomore in high school. And let's fast forward to when I was 24. I hadn't been following the Lord for about six or seven years. And coming out of college, I was basically selfish self-centered. Anybody else like that coming out if you went to college? <laughs> and I was pursuing Keith's plans, you know, Keith's career. Uh, Keith's uh, owning my own business. I was fortunate to own my own business. And then I bought a home, bought that new car. And I just had all these things that I wanted. And on the weekends, I pursued relationships with girls at bars. Uh, eventually, I started dating a girl that I met at the bar, and I thought, okay, this, this is part of Keith's plan to make Keith happy. It's the girl, okay? 
And I believe that getting married was the missing element in my life, that this would make life happy and full for me. And I wanted companionship, and she provided that. And we had this whirlwind romance, and within 10 months, I'm engaged. At that time, I got to tell you, I was completely self-reliant. I wasn't praying about this relationship. Uh, I was not seeking God's will. I was not seeking his plan for my life. But God did something very striking right before we got married. So my brother and sister-in-law, they invited me and my fiance to this retreat. And I thought, oh, this will be, I love my brother. This will be cool. I'll get to hang out with my brother for a couple of days. We get to that retreat place, and the, and the first night, this guy's sharing the gospel. And it hits me afresh and new, all anew again. And man, I was sold out. I went to the front, and I said, I recommitted my life to Christ. And I got to tell you, it's probably the most surreal, surreal two days of my life, because from that moment on, everyone else vanished. My brother and his wife, my fiance, my cousin who was at the same retreat. And all I, I felt so one with God that all I wanted to do in between the sessions is just walk out in the woods and be with God. And then that just carried over to the rest of my life. And uh, within two weeks, I had called off the wedding, which was really hard. I shed some tears with my fiance, her family. It was, a, it was a really tough deal. But what I learned is, God showed me a couple of big things out of this, is when you rely on yourself, you're going to make some bad decisions. I was about to spend the rest of my life with a woman I did not love. Okay? On top of that, only God could fill me and make me complete. He was the missing element. He was what I was looking for. I thought it was the girl. No, it was something much bigger and something better. And so I started operating differently. I started reading the Word again, going back to church, reading my Bible. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to start praying. If God wants me to be married, that uh, he'll pick out the girl. And he'll tell me when. And uh, he'll tell me who, and he'll work all that out. Well, guess what? Within a year and a half of this deal with my fiance, I meet Kay. And there's a big story in how she came to my life. And some of the guys here have heard this story over and over again. They're going, Kay, please, not this story again. But uh, I'm not going to give you all the details. It's pretty, uh, pretty interesting how she came, back, came into my life. Within a year, Kay and I were married. I was 26, she was 27. Whirlwind romance. And uh, I praise God because he knows what he's doing. Keith on his own? No. Okay, I'm sharing this story with you today because I don't want any of us, especially the young people here, to fall into this trap of self-reliance. And guess what? James doesn't want you to fall into that trap either. Let's go to James 4. Verses uh, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll, we will go do such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So these verses, you know what they're about? What I was talking about, they're about self-reliance and self-centeredness. 
And I love that James, he does this often. He confronts his audience like it's an Old Testament thing, like he's Isaiah or something. He says, come now. Can't believe you're doing this. Well, what James was doing, he's, he's addressing the materialistic core of the culture. If you read deeper, you see that it's uh, probably a traveling uh, Jewish merchants that he was talking about. You know, they were common in uh, James' day. They would go to a city, sell all kinds of goods, get rich, and then move on to the next city. These guys had the perfect plan. I mean, they've got it all mapped out. Location, okay, we're going to go to a certain city. Duration, we're going to spend a year there. Activity, we're going to engage in business. Intended outcome, make a profit. The problem is not having and making a plan. That's a good thing. I mean, uh, for those of you who are with us in January, we went through yearly rhythms. We went through a number of scriptures that say it's good to plan. It's good to bring God into those plans. The problem for the merchants here was leaving God completely out of the plan, just like me. Also in verses 13 through 16, James presents four arguments that showed the foolishness of ignoring God's will. If I can get to them. Might want to help me out a little bit back there. There we go. So in these verses, what we see is the complexity of life. We see the uncertainty of life, the brevity of life, and then the frailty of humans. Life is really complex. We need God more than ever right now. I mean, you know what's going to make it even more and more complex? Technology. I mean, it's increasing at a pace that's just going to continue to make this world a complex place to live. And, and as for, like, tomorrow, we don't even know what's going to happen with the rest of today in our lives. We don't know what's going to have to happen tomorrow. It's, life, it's uncertain. Life is uncertain. And then life is short. It's, it's but a blip when you consider eternity, this time on earth. And then we as humans, in the big picture, we're pretty frail. We're pretty weak. And so what, what we want to do is, when you think through these, the complexity and, and all these things, is it points to one thing. We need God. We need God in our lives. And these merchants, these businessmen, uh, they weren't thinking of these important things at all. And they certainly didn't consult the Lord before making the plans. And they were boasting about tomorrow, about all the things that they are planning to do. And James condemned such boasting. And there's many scriptures that condemn boasting in the Bible. So the problem is the merchants, they didn't consider the role of God in their lives. Been, have you been there before? Have you ever thought about God's role in your life? I hope he has a role. And there's no indication for these merchants that there was any dependence on God, just like me when I was young. Now, if you go to John 15:5, you'll see why dependence on God is so important. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing 
that matters to God if we don't remain in Him. What does that mean? It means that we have faith in Him. We worship Him. We pray to Him. We read His Word. We have a personal relationship with our very personal God. That's what that means when we remain in Him. In James 14, uh, verse 14 is saying, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow brings. What James is saying is, for what is your life? For what is your life? And this in question was intended to shake them out of apathy and help them re reassess their priorities. And we all need that. We need something to shake us out of our apathy, don't we? Uh, an example of this is uh, I was a volunteer chaplain for the Cedar Park Police Department for uh, seven or eight years. And I came along many individuals and families who had just experienced sudden death of a, of a loved one. Sometimes it was suicide. Sometimes it was natural causes. Sometimes it was an auto accident. And uh, typically chaplains are some of the first on the scene. And it never failed in these times when you're talking with these families and they're processing things, they go through this process of reassessing their priorities. Sudden death causes people to reassess their priorities. And it causes them to reassess their spiritual beliefs. It really gets their attention. It takes death sometimes to shake us out of spiritual apathy. And then as a hospital chaplain, it was really sad as I would go and see families that uh, um, really uh, had been through some, whether it was an auto accident or other things, and they would see God as a last resort. You know, it's the sentiment that was shared with me often was, you know, I've tried the medicines, I've tried the treatments, and that just hasn't, you know, cured me of the cancer, and it's looking bleak, but you know what? I, I, I have a last resort. If there is a God, I'll I'll, I'll pray to God and see if he might, you know, bail me out. This is, this is about being self-reliant until you're forced to be dependent on God. And the situation's out of your control. So James is confronting men who were arrogantly predicting their future, the course of their life. And then he gives them a bigger perspective. This one kind of hurts. And he just says you know, your vapor. And this word vapor is uh, it's, it's a Greek word, which means steam. It could be incense, smoke. It's anything that's just, you see it, and then it vanishes. This is what James is saying about our lives. It's gone in an instant. So we're here for a brief time, and then we vanish. Now, compared to eternity, though, this is just a very, very short span of, in time, Right? So God wants us to focus on him and the here and now and not wait until we're on our deathbed. He really wants us to have that relationship, deep relationship with him right now because life is a vapor. He really wants us to press in. And then uh, there is a solution. Anybody want a solution to self-reliance? Dependence on God. Instead, you have to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And that's called a sin of omission. Now James offers a solution to this boasting. And this is really the perspective that God wants all of us to have. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this and we will do that. This is including God in your plan. This is being dependent on God. So as I, I go back to my personal story that I've shared with you, after I committed my life to Christ, um, I kind of switched over, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I'll get married. To whom? You choose. Uh, your will be done. And I found out that life, all of life from that point, has worked better. Does it work better for you when you went with God's will and not your own? So the better approach is if the Lord wills. Now in verse 16, the Greek word for boast, it connotates a, a vain pretension, pretentiousness. We see the picture of a self-made man and he's taking credit for everything he's done. He's not even, God doesn't even enter the picture. And uh, that's who James is talking about. You boast in your arrogance. And it's really displayed in an attitude that puts man in God's place. Sometimes we put ourselves in God's place. And the scripture is saying this kind of pride is evil. We don't want to think of ourselves as evil, do we? So we can fall into this same trap or not. There's a better approach. If the Lord wills, having faith and dependence on him. So... Hey, students, if you're, if you're experiencing peer pressure, I want you to know that you can have freedom from peer pressure. You're beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. So you don't have to worry about what other students think of you. Don't worry about it. There's no one, believe me, there's no one you need to impress in middle school and high school Parents, God can give you assurance in parenting. I mean, he did not create any of us to parent perfectly. But he does give us enough grace to parent really well. And so, parents, I would just say, reach out to God and seek his, his great wisdom, his discernment, because he knows, how to, he knows how to handle every challenge your child is going to face. That's who I want on my team. You know, singles, I know it's hard living out your identity in Christ out there. It's rough. It's rough not to follow the crowd. But God doesn't want you comparing your life to other singles that are not living their best life right now. He wants you to find pleasure in Him. So don't go that way. Live out your identity in Christ and you will find uh, the kind of happiness that God wants you to experience found in him. So the best approach to every situation is if the Lord wills. So let's, let's all try to avoid self-reliance and submit ourselves humbly to God. Now let's talk about our last point. Warnings uh, to the wealthy. Come now, you rich. Let me get to the scripture here. 
Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Wow, ouch. James is using that come now approach again, just like the uh, olden day prophets. This time he's addressing money, okay? And we don't know for sure if James is addressing believers or unbelievers, but he is addressing wealthy people. But before we get started on this talk about money, nowhere does the Bible condemn being rich or investing your money. Money is not evil. In fact, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's the attitude that you have toward money. It's the love of money that is the problem. And you know, most of us, he's really talking to, he's addressing us. I mean, let's face it. If you live in America, you're living better than 95% of the world population. Do you realize that? If you look at household income, uh, I mean, in, in America, I'm not saying everybody is, falls into that category, but I mean, we have, we live a quite, quite a bit better financially here than uh, many countries. And so I think this, uh, we need to heed some of this advice. Um, you know, you think about it, if you own a home in the greater Austin area, and you've seen your values skyrocket, uh, you've become a wealthy. Some of us have become wealthy uh, with our homes. But James wrote these instructions to warn of the dangers of being wealthy. He just wants to say, hey, I just want you to, I just want you to be careful about this. And it must be important because James has brought up the wealthy. This is the third time, and we're at the James 4, and it's the third time he's brought up the rich. And the reason is because wealth brings consternation, it ends up in corrosion, and it results in condemnation if it's handled the wrong way. Not for everyone. Let's talk about wealth brings consternation. You're going, what the heck does that mean? I mean, well, wealth brings considerable anxiety that leads to misery if the money owns us. And God's word consistently warns about where these temptations can go. It can bring out temptations such as materialism. Just can't get enough stuff. A false sense of security. Okay, I've got my money. I don't need God. I'm secure. A desire to control others. And then personal pride. So the rich should be careful. The wealthy should be careful not to rejoice too much because just around the corner could be misery. And then the corrosive effect of wealth. These scriptures that we were reading, I mean, they were talking about the things that were valued the most, rotting. They were talking, uh, James was talking about food and drink. Good food and drink was highly valued. Garments, uh, that was one of the most popular forms of wealth in biblical times. Uh, people use garments to pay for things. Instead of using money, they, here, take my jeans. Except they didn't have jeans. But, you know, even today, we spend a ton of money on clothes, don't we? And gold and silver and utensils of that day, ornaments. Man, if they were just socked away, 
guess what? They start corroding. It's like the stuff up in our attics. And the corrosion destroys the value of things. So the presence of corroded gold or silver in the rich man's store of possessions, it bears witness to unfaithful stewardship of wealth. So if, you're, if you've got something in a storage unit and it's been there for 15 years, you hadn't touched it, that's what, kind of what this is just talking about is, you know, it's going to corrode. Because the wealthy, they are to use the money, not hoard it. Believers, you are to use your money and not hoard it. And then condemnation. James warned that the process destroys both gold and silver. It's the same process that destroys the people who collect those precious metals. It is as though the corroding metal bears witness to the corroding effect that hoarding has on the hoarder himself or herself. Not pleasant to think about that. And then the, the goal of having money is not to enable us to live lives of selfishness and laziness. If you want to read more about that, you can read Matthew 6, 19 through 24. What do, what do we use it for then? I mean, if you're, you're in church this morning, so you probably believe in the mission of God in the world. That's why we give to the church and other organizations that are really intent on introducing people to the life-changing, the life-transforming reality of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what we're committed to. We know when people come in relation with Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes the world. And to lay up treasure in heaven means that we are stewards of God's wealth. He, he owns it all. Uh, we, we possess many things, but we really don't own them. He, he owns it all. And he wants us, he's saying, hey, my creation, I want you to be good stewards of this money that I've given you. Now, the Bible doesn't discourage saving money or investing money. It just talks about hoarding, you know. Uh, hoarding actually, as it's used here in this scripture, means accumulating wealth just to have lots of it. Not for security, but for prestige and self-gratification. So, my wife Kay and I, we've given away a lot of money. But guess what? We don't want to give away all of it. Okay? We don't want to get, we're getting older, and we don't want our children to have to uh, take care of us when we get old. We don't want them to have that financial responsibility. So, we want to save some money to take care of ourselves in our old age. And we feel good about that, okay? We also, uh, we support a missionary. We support another church plant. We support our grandchildren. Uh, we're helping with an education fund for our grandchildren. We got six of them now. So that, what we give to that fund increases every year. I'm going like, hey, okay, we, thank you. We're, we're thankful for these six. Just kidding, just kidding. Grandkids are great. But, um, you know, and there's also, yeah, we want to be able to give our kids a gift when we die. We want them to have this parting gift. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It is difficult, though, to decide how much to set aside, how much to set aside for emergencies. And uh, it's easily to rationalize how much money that we need, right? You know, where, where saving kind of needs to stop and where hoarding begins. And I think the best thing to do is... You know, Scripture encourages to be cheerful givers. 
to be, uh, have an attitude of gratefulness and give out of that, to be generous. And I think that the way you feel about giving your money is, is a guide to where maybe your heart is, where your possessions is, your attitude toward your possessions is where your heart is. And so I gave everyone, uh, not everyone, but I think every, under, every, every other chair is this little tool. I read this and man, I was just going like, that's kind of a tough gut check, some of these uh, things on here, because it's, it's the world's view of riches and then the word of God's view of riches. And then guess what? They don't line up. And so I hope, just take that with you, and I hope that's a helpful tool that maybe can let you see where your heart is. And then lastly, there can be misuse of money. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man who does not resist you. So this is about the, the misuse of wealth. And if you look at the context of these verses, talk about the landowners. And the landowners would take advantage of the laborers. They would withhold the money sometimes. And the sad thing is, these day laborers, I mean, they were t- dependent on this money for their daily food to stay alive. It's really sad. Why do things like this even happen throughout the world? Well, it's because wealth can make us savage. Wealth can lead us to even withholding compassion from, uh, toward other people. What a great challenge for us in this wealthy nation uh, when we think about this, that money could even hold us back from having compassion on others. Well, Scripture makes it very clear that God will judge those who oppress the poor. So he takes care of that. You can read about that in Ezekiel 18 or, or even going back to James 1. And then going on to verse 5, we love luxury and convenience, Okay. We love heated seats. We love uh, avocado spreads. Uh, we even like to camp in luxury. I mean, camping's not what it used to be. So we, we, we've become self-indulgent with everything. We want every convenience. I mean, just think about the uh, communication. You know, I think about the days when we had phones. I lived out in the country, and I'd grab the phone, and then it was plugged direct into the wall. And you get on there, and someone would be talking. And you'd go, like, how long are you going to be on the line? They'd say, well, I'll be on for five more minutes. You know? And then you'd put down, and you had to wait five minutes because it was a shared line. And then you'd get back on there, and someone else would be on there because they got in before you did. Well, that, that kind of grew from this thing that's attached to the wall uh, with a dedicated line to where you could, have, like, you could have your own line. In addition to that, you could have this long cord, and you could walk around, your, well, you know, walk around the room and actually use it. You know, and eventually we had phones that you could, like, like remove, and you could charge them and take them, like the BlackBerry then. All these things led up to having cell phones today, and you know what? Cell phone is a small computer, and it has the world at its fingertips. Think about that. And even with the cell phone, we get frustrated, and we go, this isn't good enough. I mean, it's just like, 
We want, we always want something else to satisfy us. We want more. That's just our sinful human nature. But I tell you, the challenge is God is lifting us to think differently, to have a different focus with our wealth. I mean, we, we know that God cares about the poor. And those of us in Christ, we know that we're supposed to care for the poor. You know, many of the nonprofit organizations that serve people throughout the world are driven by men and women in Christ. Most of the people who go visit people in prisons are believers. Such a strong ministry, a hard ministry. Might that be the story of our church family? That we would invest our money and our time and energy in things like this? And I know many of you do. I know your stories. And then finally in verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So, you know, the oppression of the rich, uh, it extended to the point of putting to death those who would stand in the rich merchant's way. Even though these people didn't even resist them. Does verse 6 bring anyone else to mind? You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. man. He does not resist you. That'd be Jesus. He's the richest man of all time. I mean, it's God in the flesh. Then he loaded himself, became poor on our behalf. I mean, although he was without sin, he was sinless, he was condemned and put to death for our sin. And guess what? He didn't realize, Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. He didn't resist them at all. In fact, he's dying. He's looking down at them and he's going, Father in heaven, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Jesus causes us to want to do away with self-reliance. He relied on the Father. Jesus Dependence on God, which you see throughout his, his life, he's dependent on God. He prays to God. He goes to God. And Jesus, he sets the example of putting people first, not possessions. He didn't own one thing. He barely owned the clothes on his back. And guess what? Jesus is the only one who can save us. He's the only one that can get us to that next life. And, but it's not that. Jesus wants to propel us into heaven. When we're done here, we've let out his purpose. He wants to propel us into heaven. The question is, if you don't know him, why wouldn't you give him a try? Why wouldn't you just say, if you're real, show me this. Show me that what Keith is talking about this morning is true. I've experienced it. I can tell you it's true. Many of you have experienced it. You can tell, you can tell others it's true. I want you to experience it for yourself. So don't leave here today without considering saying yes to Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, I I thank you that you care about us and love us enough to, that, that you wrote 66 books and put it in this one book called the Bible so we would know who you are and how you interact with us, how you 
the wisdom that you want to give us to do life, and, and you use James to give us that, that wisdom today. And I thank you, because I've, I've been trapped in self-reliance. I still get trapped in self-reliance. I need to be reminded that I'd, about my dependency on you, Lord. I can do no good thing without you. And Lord, I also know that you put our wealth into perspective. And uh, Lord, that you've given us the ability to support many good things, many great things. And I pray that it will continue to be the history of our church, that we would be a difference maker in the greater Austin area. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.